Welcome everybody to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker back with another Connecting the Universe weekly interactive class for you Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time at the Connected Universe portal. So go to ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Check that out. Those who are listening to the podcast later. I'm going to be providing a clip of this publicly for our class question coming up this week. Now, our actual class this week is on more Alaska Triangle Mysteries. I'll be quite forthcoming and honest here. I have an interview on that coming up here at the end of the week in Boulder, Boulder Colorado, flying out there tomorrow. And so I'm, I'm kind of warming up for it. <laughs> but I'm not going to just rehash all the same material that I have before here. There'll be some things that are that are the same, but others that are uh, that might be new, or maybe we'll take a little bit of a deeper dive or a different angle onto some of these different topics. But before we get to all of that, and again, those listening to the podcast later, please join us weekly, 8 o'clock p.m. Wednesday nights, connecteduniverseportal.com. You got a 30-day free trial. You get all the weekly classes. You get all the behind-the-scenes footage. You get the all the Egypt footage, all the sneak peek videos. The Ireland trip that's coming, all of that stuff, the American Southwest tour, you get all of that stuff on the back end, as well as many, many articles. And you can check it out 30 days for free, connectinguniverseportal.com. All right, let's go ahead and get started here with our class question, which has nothing to do with Alaska. It has to do with Mars. In this fantastic photo that has recently been released, what do you think about the recent photo taken by the masked camera on board the Mars Curiosity rover? Uh, for those that have not yet seen this, basically it looks like a carved out passageway into the side of a hill, a rock hill, on Mars. This is a legitimate photograph. This is not an internet hoax. I have provided on my social media the actual link to this on the NASA website. And I'll just rattle it off here. Mars.nasa.gov slash raw underscore images slash 1064629. That is where you can get the image off of the NASA website. So I had a lot of feedback on this, and I will answer uh, a, a very pertinent question that I kind of got thrown at me uh, earlier today. We'll get to that in a moment. So what did you think about it? Uh, what questions do you have? Sean Coletta, one of our members here at the Connect Universe portal, says, my question is, how did this photo not get immediately, quote unquote, disappeared? Uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> how is it still up there? Well, they, re they released it publicly. And if they were to backtrack on it right now or suddenly make it disappear, they would be called out on that. It would be like an immediate red flag like oh there was absolutely something there because nasa pulled it back right away so um i think what will end up happening is they will somehow claim this as a natural geologic feature again look at it it looks like a passage is carved right out of the rock face We'll get to a couple of features of this in just a second here. Mary Haygood's in the house. Great to see you, Mary. So some other comments regarding how it actually looks. 
Um, well, okay, we'll get to that in a second. Truth Defender Podcast, Paul Aguilar says, Mars is inhabited underground. Although he's on the fence about that, not even sure if we've been to space. He has a very good podcast, Pod does. He's interviewed me on that before. Uh, he posted that on Instagram here just before the show started. Uh, Lorley Krieger, Lorelai Krieger, sorry, says, it definitely looks like an entrance to something to me, but the closer you look at it, it doesn't seem to really go anywhere. So quite possibly just a piece of rock has fallen off. Every time I see it, I go back and forth on those two possibilities. And this second comment here ties into that. Sal uh, Calderaro says, looks like the other two big rock pieces in the pick were originally removed slash cut from the unnatural looking hole. So yeah, if you do look at it a little bit closer with what uh, Lorelai says, you, you can't see that back right corner. You see the back left corner, so it almost looks like it may be a niche. Now, because we can't see the back right corner, there is a possibility that you know, maybe the passageway goes in and then turns to the right, like immediately, which is a possibility. But it does appear there on the left-hand side that it abruptly ends in a nice little corner. And again, it's a, a very clean cut. Uh, with Sal's comments there, you know, is it possible that some of these other larger rocks there in front are from that? You know, were they the pieces that were cut out of it? Possibly. Um, you'd, you'd have to try to piece that together because that one particular rock looks like it has a very flat bottom. Now, it also looks like there's a relatively smooth path coming out of this hole in the rock face, too. So that's kind of interesting. These other two comments kind of go together. Dustin Harms says, since I think the Earth is our third home, clearly that's a man-made cave. Sunshine Estar says, perhaps we flip-flop from Mars to Earth as a species, terraforming, et cetera, et cetera. Whoops, Earth is uninhabitable. Let's terraform Mars. Whoops, we screwed up Mars again. Let's go back to Earth. So very interesting comments and observations. Uh, this is something that I was talking about with Josh Riley on, um, on his Conversations from the Fringe podcast last that was Friday that was last Friday and we got into that discussion there toward the end about earth is not our original home and how we are very very different from many of the other species that are here on this planet that we have likely been to and lived on some of these other planets within the solar system like Mars in the past we may even come from another solar system altogether but Mars could have certainly been one of the uh, original resting spots for the human race. Things happened to Mars, uh, whether that was humans doing it, or if you look at Mars, it has been visually scarred. You know, something slammed into that planet pretty hard. And so perhaps, you know, the humans, uh, human race is a survivor of some sort of meteor strike or a piece from the planet that was between Mars and Jupiter, you know, what's now the asteroid belt, part of that could have slammed into Mars. Maybe we're on two planets at the same time. I don't know. Um, but this idea that uh, this image here, this, this hole in niche, or is there a passage in there? Uh, did humans once carve this? Maybe some other intelligent species seems likely just given the smooth surfaces and, uh, you know, the way it appears to be cut. So, and then Greta Reefert asks me, 
what's your initial thoughts? So what's my opinion on this? So uh, my opinion on this is, um, is very tantalizing. I want to believe that it is truly a nice little piece of evidence, finally, that, um, that they are giving us. Again, I believe that they are going to be very uh, close-lipped about this. I think they are going to try to pawn it off on a you know, geological feature that somehow it's quite natural, that somehow a piece of rock just very... Uh, very nicely popped right out of the side of the hill. And we'll have to take that with a grain of salt, just like many of the other things that they've done. Um, I point to the disclosure statement last year where they finally didn't deny things happening, which was really kind of their MO in the past was deny, deny, deny. Even though they had organizations like Project Blue Book looking into all these cases, even though they had 700 cases open still and completely ignored all of those in this report that basically started the timeline up from the early 2000s, acting like that's when this research started. No, it didn't. And I had those sorts of problems with that report, but they at least left the door open and said, we can't explain some of these things. That's a, that is your glimmer of light that you can take from that. This, you know, I haven't heard anything official yet uh, throughout this day as this image has gone around the, the internet. But I think it's going to be kind of one of the those same things. There are probably, let me say this. Um, I believe it's just one of those little clues that they are going to leave out there. Now, there is just the hearings on what to do about looking into UAP. So the timing of this is really unusual too. So we're having these congressional meetings on UAPs. And then you have this image that pops out from Mars that of course we're going to naturally discuss. So I can't say who or what made it other than it appears some sort of intelligent design is behind it. Why into that rock face? Why maybe just a niche? If we look at it once again, um, you know, it does appear to be a doorway into the side of the hill. You have the path that seems to be coming down out of it. I'll throw this out there real quick. We've seen the imagery of stargates in Egypt. Is this one of the possible destinations of those stargates just putting that question out there all right let's take a look at some of the comments that are coming in here um tom says he left a comment but just sent it 10 minutes ago um tom go ahead and throw your comment down here in the chat because um i didn't see it i was about to start the show and uh Aunt Celine is in the house as well great to see you Anne. all right so let's go ahead and get into our alaska discussion again i'm not I'm going to try not to rehash every single uh, little thing that I have before in the past. We don't have enough time for that anyways. But I do want to kind of go through, like I said, I, I am being kind of blatant here in saying that you know, this is a warm-up for my interview on Friday. 
So we'll take it from that perspective. So one of the things here is I was, you know, to put together a, um, you know, a list of questions, basically you know, like talking points and several interviews that you do, you know, whether it's, you know, podcasts, radio, something like this. Um, sometimes I ask you to send uh, different po talking points. This is in uh, a few different blocks, uh, you know, segments of the show. So, you know, we have a main topic and then questions that fall under that topic. So the first part of that is vortices, portals, and the power of the Alaska Triangle. You guys know how I feel about the energy there in Alaska. And when we talk about uh, these different sites of power on Earth, whether it's, uh, you know, Bermuda Triangle, Dragon Triangle. Of course, we have Alaska here, Bridgewater, Lake Michigan. Uh, Tom always loves the, the Lake Michigan Triangle. But other locations as well, like Stonehenge, you know, these ancient standing stone sites, the pyramids, uh, you know, things like that. You know, the what is the ancient power that they are tapping into? Well, when it comes to Alaska, there are very many similarities between the Alaska Triangle and these other triangles. And that is the way that the energy in those areas interacts with people, objects, navigational instrumentation, things like that. And what's going on is that the, uh, the magnetism welling out of the Earth's core, what we call that vortex energy, as that is welling up out of the Earth's core, it's magnetic, and it interacts with the different metals and minerals, water, things like that uh, within the Earth's crust and mantle as it's coming up. And depending on what it interacts with, it creates different properties. When we talk about different minerals, you know, people, some people believe that there is a, uh, there are large crystals or a large crystal there under the Bermuda Triangle. I don't know about a large crystal, but are there different crystals under the Bermuda Triangle? Most likely. Uh, there's all kinds of crystals kind of everywhere, uh, or in at least most locations on Earth, but there's going to be different ones underneath there. So that will create some sort of probably uh, piezoelectric uh, manifestation as it's coming up. And that's what's interfering with uh, GPS, guidance systems, compasses, things like that. You know, as it's coming out, it could spawn off portals and strange weather patterns and things like this. So as we get into that a little bit deeper, um, Specifically with Alaska, question here, uh, what kind of scientific studies uh, have been done into the magnetism of the region? And that would be the 1965 survey done by the Department of the Interior there in Alaska. They surveyed 100,000 square miles. And I should be showing you guys some of these. Uh, I, I loaded up a bunch of photos. <laughs> and I'm not even showing any. Um, Okay, there's the Earth's energy grid, what we've been talking about here. And you can see one of the big uh, crossing points that they have there in, uh, in the Bermuda Triangle. And then you see uh, uh, a crossing there up in Alaska, which would be part of the Alaska Triangle. If this is accurate, I mean, this is just an image that I, I grabbed off the internet. Um, but let's actually take a look at the map of the Alaska Triangle here. So 
100,000 square miles, which a good chunk of that 100,000 square miles is right smack dab there in the middle of the Alaska Triangle. Um, what they discovered were what they called these distinct magnetic characters, five of them in this 100,000 square mile area. In several of these, they determined to be negative anomalies. And this here is the cover sheet for, uh, for that report, Geologic Interpretation of Reconnaissance Aeromagnetic Survey of Northeastern Alaska. And that was 1965 uh, Department of the Interior. So you have the United States government telling us there are negative magnetic anomalies there in Alaska. You know, this isn't just pseudoscience. This is, you know, government stamped and approved. How much you trust the government, I don't know. But these are surveys that they did, uh, you know, back in the day, a little over 50 years ago. So carrying forth with that, um, you know, what kind of experiments have I performed in the Alaska Triangle? Well, I think you guys are familiar with me and the dowsing rods uh, up there. This was filmed for the Alaska Triangle television show. And I did find what may have been what we call telluric currents. So, uh, you know, telluric currents are that electromagnetic energy that's running through the ground. People kind of, you know, we, we call it ley lines, which I say, yeah, ley lines is kind of the layman terms for, uh, for the telluric currents. What the ley actually is, is the, lining up of all the geographic sites like stone circles temples cathedrals pyramids all those different things lining up along that line that's the lay but they're lined up in this line like this because of the energy that's running under the ground along those spots that's the telluric current now i wish i would have explained it like that when i interviewed for the unexplained with william shatner I didn't. We kind of went back and forth on that a little bit, um, kind of, uh, you know, rehashing that. And I was kind of stuck on the same terminology through it. And it's like, I wish I would have said that. And I didn't, unfortunately. But that's all right. I'm sure they got what they needed for the show. So those are the lays. Those are, those are the telluric currents. Now, when you actually talk about ley lines, again, G, uh, uh, ge ge uh, geographical uh, locations lining up. You actually don't really see that in Alaska so much because they don't have these ancient temples and things like that up there unless they're buried under the ground or under the ice, which is totally possible, of course, or even underground because they do have a lot of seismic activity up there, which is something to really note about Alaska. Uh, so we've, we've been talking about the magnetic energy, but you also have a lot of seismic energy up there. Uh, a lot of earthquakes. Second largest earthquake ever recorded in the world happened in Alaska, 1964. Uh, it was the largest ever in the United States. It was a 9.2, absolutely devastated anchorage in the surrounding area. It was so powerful that all the way down in Seattle, the Space Needle rocked. And you had tsunamis crashing into California. And you actually had several people die in California from tsunamis from this earthquake all the way up in Alaska. Just sad. Uh, but, it, but it happens. 
You also have volcanic activity up in Alaska. And what I guys have heard many times me tell the story of when I stepped off the plane in Alaska, there was still some ash falling from the sky from a recent volcanic eruption, uh, Mount Spur across Cook Inlet, uh, from where I was going to be stationed at Elmendorf. Uh, and we actually had to cover our computers at night there for the first couple of months that I was there to protect them from the ash that was still uh, filtering down out of the air. In fact, when I bought my first truck up there, you know, lift up the hood and along the, the lip of the hood, there were little piles of ash. It was, it was pretty crazy. And there's still active volcanoes up there today. I mean, that was 1992, Mount Spur is still considered an active volcano. But the Aleutian Islands, um, within that chain, you have several active volcanoes. And it was recently discovered here that they are part of an ancient caldera. A caldera is basically a ancient super volcano. So probably one of the most well-known ones is the caldera in Yellowstone Park. If that was to ever erupt, um, these days it would devastate a large part of the United States. They say it covered, when it did erupt the last time, it covered over 5,000, uh, was it 5,000 square miles, something like that. So if I'm remembering my numbers correctly. So these things are very, very powerful. You have all of this energy mixing up there. And then, of course, you have the uh, the famous Aurora Borealis, where you know that effect is the solar flares slamming into the ionosphere. And we see the, uh, the auroras up there because the uh, magnetic protection from the Earth is thinner up there. And so we see more of the auroras that occur up there. So you have this kind of cocktail, this soup of energy between uh, the solar flares, the seismic activity, the volcanic activity, and then the, uh, the negative anomalies of the Earth's magnetism in that area. And that's why there's so much activity there. So, so we continue on. We get into missing people, planes, and maritime tragedies. This is the next block. So we have quite a few different things here. Now, I'm going to throw this one out there real quick because this is just kind of, I say it's fun, but it's really kind of crazy. Uh, when I first got up to Alaska in 1992, that spring, April 1993, there's a plane taking off from the Anchorage airport that its plane, or its plane, its engine just fell right off the plane, crashed into a supermarket parking lot. It's the backside of the parking lot, fortunately. Nobody was back there. Nobody got hurt. They were shrapping all that rain down into the adjacent neighborhoods. Again, nobody got hurt. People were walking into their bedrooms and finding chunks of metal you know, lodged into the floor of their bedrooms and crashed right through the ceiling. Somehow nobody got hurt, which is good. They turned the plane around, landed back at uh, the Anchorage airport. So they determined, they determined that it was a structural failure, um, this large aircraft and the engine falling off of it. I got a little clip for that. Uh, some of you have seen this before, but we'll go ahead and play it real quick. Okay, and one of the crazier stories uh, that happened while I was living here in Alaska, this used to be a, a Safeway back here, some sort of education center now. Uh, it used to be like a strip of stores inside and all that. It's totally different now. Um, a plane taking off from the airport, all of a sudden, the engine one of its engines just dropped right off the plane. Parts of the wing went flying off in different directions. So some of the apartments over there uh, got nailed with debris from the wing. And then 
back over here in the back of the, fortunately in the back of the parking lot, nobody was hurt. That's where the engine fell, back there. So that happened in 1993. Crazy stuff. I'm telling you, up here in Alaska, you never know what in the world you're going to get. It's nuts. All right, there you go. So that's when I was up in Alaska. That was almost three years ago now. It really doesn't seem like it was that long ago now. But uh, yeah, it was, I think it was three years ago right now when we filmed up there. Um, so those that are listening to the podcast later, if you actually want to watch those clips like that, you can come out here, sign up, uh, connecteduniverseportal.com and join us for the live presentation every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. And of course, I post the recordings onto the uh, Connected Universe portal after the fact as well. So, all right, as we get into planes, though, um, I, I don't really want to rehash a story too much about the the missing uh, missing Douglas airplane, 1950, or the uh, Hale Boggs disappearance. But those things uh, have happened quite a bit where, uh, you know, Hale Boggs, Nick Baggish, 1972, very famous because uh, Hale Boggs was the... Um, was the House Majority Leader at the time. So when he went missing, that was a big deal. They had thousands and thousands of people out scouring for that airplane. It was the largest search and rescue mission at that time in U.S. history. They even had spy planes flying overhead to try to find this airplane, to try to find uh, the these missing congressmen. Never found again. No wreckage, nothing. Completely disappeared. And this is something unusual that has happened uh, for many people in Alaska, where the planes will just go missing. Uh, another famous one was the Douglas Skymaster that went missing in 1950 as it crossed over to Yukon Territory near Snag, just poof, went missing. Uh, 44 crew on that plane, completely gone. Now, we do have some ideas and theories about it disappearing into a portal and what it would look like after the fact. Like, okay, went through the portal. What happened after it went through the portal? And the theory that I've postulated is if it went into a portal and it went to another point in time, then what would it look like to those people that were there at that point in time? Let's say it went back in time 500 years and you have the indigenous peoples of the land witnessing this large plane flying overhead. They would have no context of what an airplane is. They would think, large bird, never seen anything like this before. It's very loud, thunderous. I think this may be where some of the Thunderbird legends come out of. And there is precedent for this. You know, this isn't just uh, people being wildly speculative about this. Uh, if you look, and I don't think I have the image for, for this. Nope, I don't. I didn't, oh, I, I do. It's down here. It's out of place. So you know, Bruce Gernon down in the Bermuda Triangle uh, in, a, in a flight that he conducted, he entered into what he described as an electronic fog. Basically, it swirled, the clouds started swirling into this, into this funnel, and he flew through it, was basically grabbing him and dragging him through it. He didn't really have a choice. He ended up going... 100 miles in just a couple of minutes. Uh, in, in three minutes time, he was suddenly there uh, coming out on the other side near Miami. 
So he basically got catapulted ahead in time uh, by several, several minutes, by basically like an hour and a half. It wasn't that his plane suddenly went super fast. He was displaced in time from one point to another. Not a large amount. You know, my, my theory on the Thunderbirds would put them back. It doesn't have to be 500 years, but you know, maybe a couple hundred, <laughs> uh, which would be a great, a greater amount of time than Bruce Gernon's uh, incident there. But again, there's still some precedent for it. As far as uh, different maritime incidents, uh, we have some very, very sad tales uh, with like the, the Princess Sophia. This is known as the Alaska Titanic. Uh, you had over 300 people die on this ship. Uh, what ended up happening, it was, the, it was the last run of the season, and they were taking the, the ship through the Lynn Canal, which the captain, Captain Locke, had done countless number of times. This was a, this was a route that he ran all the time. Uh, people that had, uh, that had commented about Locke in the past, you know, basically he was a stand-up guy. You know, they all said that he was a, he was a stand-up guy. Now his, some of the things that he did during this tragedy, people have questioned, but other captains have backed him up and said that, well, there wasn't really any other options. So basically what happened was they got hung up on the Vanderbilt Reef. Now the reef is like right in the middle of the canal. And the way that Locke would usually run this route is uh, he would stay to the, the east of it. And he didn't this time. He ran it right down the middle where he knew the reef was. Well, why would he have done something like that? And so what we do know is that a massive storm had kicked up. So he couldn't navigate visually, which he likely did many, many times going through the canal, you know, bright sunny day, whatever, he can see the canal perfectly. Oh, we're going to run it over there. Well, with this massive storm kicking up, he can't do that. So he has to use compasses and navigation, which if he was, then you have that crazy energy from the Alaska Triangle kicking up then it could have thrown his navigation off. And that could very well be why he ended up right in the middle of the canal on top of the Vanderbilt Reef. One of the other things about these triangle areas is they do seem to kick up these storms. Flight 19 there in the Bermuda Triangle, one of the things that the report with that, they got the first leg of the route uh, perfectly fine. They turned north, all of a sudden the compasses started going crazy and not long after, as they're still trying to figure out what in the world to do with their compasses, a storm kicked up out of nowhere, and they ended up presumably going down. The, uh, all we last know from them is that they were talking about uh, doing some sort of water landing. But again, the point is that compasses started going crazy, storm kicked up, they were doomed. You kind of have that same thing going on here, where you have this massive storm that's kicked up out of nowhere, were the uh, were the navigational instruments instruments and the compasses affected by the electromagnetism? All of this affected by the electromagnetism of the Alaska Triangle. They couldn't get any uh, rescue boats in there because you can see how choppy the water is. So the the problem was uh, the uh, 
the rescue boats crashing against the reef and dooming those that were going to try to perform the rescue. Other ships tried to get in there close and just they couldn't. They could not get in there. And in fact, in a, uh, in a sad twist of fate with all of this, when the Princess Sophia did finally go down, um, and there were no witnesses to actually watch it go down, um, one of the uh, search and rescue showed up there basically the next day, and all that was left was the mast sticking about out of the water. But when they did an investigation of the scene, they had determined that uh, some of the people had tried to get off on the lifeboats when the Princess Sophia started to sink. And what everybody feared happened was when they lowered those lifeboats and got into the water, the waves crashed them against the reef and they all perished anyway. And also, sadly, most people did not drown. They suffocated because the oil from the boilers spilled out everywhere and people actually suffocated. It was a horrific scene when they were recovering the bodies. They had to actually clean them off to determine, did, did we grab a human? They couldn't even tell if some of these things they were grabbing out of the water were humans or you know part of the boat and had to clean them off. Um, it was absolutely gruesome. One survivor, an English setter dog. But you see some other uh, maritime uh, craziness up there as well. The ghost ship known as the Bay Chimo. Um, this particular ship kept getting trapped in the ice in Alaska. Uh, the, the crew of it, and, you know, they were hauling furs and, and things like that. Um, they would, when they would crash into the ice, they would actually get off and uh, hit a nearby town like, uh, like Barrow, now Yukiavik. Uh, and then they'd go back to get back on the boat. Okay, let's, let's check in on the boat. And uh, they'd come back and the, the boat is off sailing on its own again. And so they'd catch up to it on land because the thing would get trapped in the ice. Um, but it, it always seemed like, you know, the, the boat kind of had a mind of its own that it'd go for a while, crash into the ice, they'd catch up to it, that sort of thing. Um, a, a storm would blow in, you know, knock it off the ice again. So eventually uh, they decided that it had, suffered enough crashing into the ice that they were going to completely abandon it, get off what supplies they could and just, and just leave it. They're like, it's going to sink. It, it's hit the ice too many times. We know it actually kept sailing around the waters for a good 40 years because people kept seeing it in the water. Uh, many of the Inuit uh, peoples would report seeing the ghost ship. There are other, uh, I guess, English crews for lack of a better term, or American crews that would try to go and salvage the boat. Um, and people would talk about getting trapped on the ship. You know, it would get, it'd get trapped in ice. They'd go and they'd try to salvage something off the boat. And then all of a sudden a storm would kick up and they would be trapped in the boat for a couple of days waiting for the storm to clear. And they'd be like, okay, we're, we're done. We're not going back on that, on that boat anymore. The last time it was seen was in the 1960s. Still, floating along the water. Not really sure if it's still out there or not. I guess they did try to run a search for it in the early 2000s and could not find it. The state of Alaska actually ran a search for uh, the Bay Chimo to see if it was still out there in the water. They didn't see it where they looked. It doesn't mean it's not still out there. But now given that it's been uh, 80, 90 years, 
something like that, but at least 80 years. It, it's probably sunk by now. But you never know. So that's that's the ghost ship of Alaska. It's also a crazy story with the Clara Nevada, um, which it may actually just, it may be a murder mystery story. This thing just exploded um, leaving out of the Klondike area. Uh, nobody's really sure what happened, uh, except there's a lot of uh, theories and speculation because they had a load of gold. You know, was it set ablaze? Did it accidentally blow? Because it had a lot of mishaps on its way up to Alaska where it was hitting other boats. It was crashing into piers. It was just a, a total train wreck. And on its way out, uh, people, the last glimpse of it were uh, was a uh, orange ball of light on the water. Now, there were supposedly no survivors of this ship. There was one body ever found that was of the purser. No other bodies were ever found. No other survivors were found, except uh, Stephen Levi, who's a historian there in Alaska, who was also on the Alaska Triangle television show, uh, did some digging into the people that had been on this ship. He actually found the, the captain. The captain actually ended up captaining other ships later on. Now, he was never, I guess, he never checked back in like, hey, I'm a survivor of the Clara Nevada. That that never happened. He just went about his his job. A couple of others were found uh, in, in like different logging camps and things like that uh, in Alaska. But again, never checked in and said, hey, I'm a survivor. No. <laughs> so, so then the big question also is what happened to the gold? Uh, did those that were on the ship make off with the gold, blow up the ship and act like, you know, the ship's gone, everybody perished, but we're going to make off with gold sort of thing. It's got, it's a big, it's a big kind of mystery as far as what happened there. Where it went down though, was right by the Elder Rock Lighthouse. Last time it was seen, um, or I should say, um, one of the this is a this a haunted lighthouse, uh, and one of the first ghosts that was seen was the Clara Nevada, where the the tide had really uh, run out. It was during a storm, and just you know those moments where the ocean kind of like really pulls back. That happened here, and they were actually able to see for a short period of time the remnants of the Clara Nevada, and then of course washed back in, um, but. Uh, two of these light keepers here actually went missing one night. They had gone to uh, to service a another lighthouse in the area, left from there to um, to Comet, did some things around town, were on their way back to the lighthouse and to Elder Rock Light, and they just they were never seen again, never seen again, and. Uh, they're supposed to be haunting the lighthouse, of course, some of the tales. So you got some comments down here. Let me take a look here real quick. Um, all right. And, and thank you for posting ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Appreciate that. Mary is wondering how long I lived in Alaska. I lived there for three years, 1992 to 1995. I was stationed in, in the Air Force. Uh, so November 192 to November 195. Drove out of Alaska. Craziest drive of my life 
And I don't know how we did this in a freaking geoprism. Survived somehow. But one of the most beautiful things I ever saw, uh, we were following a snowstorm like all the way out. We'd, we'd start driving in the morning, head out, we'd hit this snowstorm. We'd kind of have to stop and wait it out till the next morning and get going again. So it took us several days to get out of there. Um, but the one night before we caught up to the storm, uh, we're coming down off this ridge, no idea what mountain it was at the time. And in the little valley below, all over the road where we were supposed to be driving was this herd of caribou. And so it was cool because you got the, it was kind of like a postcard or something because the, the moon is glowing off the, the new fallen white snow. There's the caribou everywhere. So I kind of slowly inched up because it's like, what do I do? I slowly inched up to the caribou and they just like parted like water and let us through. It was really, really cool. I loved that. It was kind of like a gift for the three crazy years I spent up in Alaska. Um, Tom asking, could there still be missing planes still in a portal that haven't reached the end yet and may return sometime in our future? Yeah, that's always a possibility that um, they could have been ported to the future and we have not yet seen them. So I always like to give the example of the past because I you know, rope in the whole Thunderbird thing with it as well. Uh, but it's also possible that they could be teleported at some point in the future and we will see them again later on at another point in time. We just haven't yet. So um, Anne saying one of her favorite types of stories are ghost ships. Yeah, the, the Bechamo is a, is a good one. Um, and then Tom relaying that. Yeah, the final, the final countdown, uh, time after time, back to the future. Yeah, the, and the final countdown is a great example because it's actually you know, using the, uh, the ship. So uh, good movie. All right. So let's get back into our next topic. Spend a little time there on, on ships. I guess I haven't really done that as much before in the past. Um, all right, paranormal, supernatural, and time travel. We've already kind of talked a little bit about time travel here a bit. Um, there are, you know, say, you know, Alaska has hauntings. It has several haunted houses uh, throughout the state. Uh, haunted hotels seems to be a big theme up there. Uh, Alaska is a very transient state, uh, always has been. In fact, uh, that time around like the Clara, Nevada, the, uh, you know, the, the Klondike Gold Rush and all that, Alaska was like the wild west of the great white north. So you had a lot of saloons and bordellos and things like that up there. We don't really think about that, um, but that existed up there. People would come in on the ships, get off in Seward and um, or Skagway, I'm sorry. Um, they'd get off at Skagway and, and some of these other little towns uh, along the eastern coast and uh, Juneau to make their way up into the Klondike and they'd hang out in some of these saloons, hotels, or bordellos, these sorts of things. Um, and so you have a lot of these stories of, and they're all kind of similar. Even um, some of the Anchorage hotels have this, even though that's a little bit further to the uh, to the northwest, where uh, you know a couple shows up, could be husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. The the man goes off to uh, find find the fortune out in the Klondike. They're going to go mining for some months. Comes back and the woman has fallen upon some sort of misfortune. Maybe she's run out of money or what have you. And she has uh, taken up as a profession in the bordello. Uh, you know, she's become a prostitute. The husband or boyfriend 
is enraged by this, kills the woman, and she's now haunting the hotel or, or old bordello or saloon uh, to this day. You find this in different forms in a lot of these different hotels around the area. Uh, we only got about 15 minutes left here, so I don't want to get too deep into that. Um, I'll kind of skip my my shadow person experience there in Alaska because I've told that uh, several times. Uh, as far as like other creatures and things like that, last week we talked about uh, the Kushtika, which is the uh, uh, Otter Man, half Otter, half human, and how they may be related to some of these other uh, legends that we have down like the American Southwest or Great Lakes, whether uh, Skinwalker, Wendigo, there's some similarities to there, uh, especially like with the with the Wendigo where they, um, you know, they will destroy your soul. And then because of the fact that, you know, they'll lure people out into the woods, they could kill you and eat you, or they may turn you into a uh, uh, another Kushtaka which is kind of like what the Wendigo would do sometimes. And if that happens, your soul is essentially damned because now you're a Kushtika instead of a human. You can't reincarnate because you're no longer a human. So you have uh, you know, different legends and stories like, like that up there as well. So the next session, section, block four, UFOs and connections to ancient civilizations. To me, this is a really fascinating area here because I end up making a lot of parallels and correlations to Antarctica. Do you want to talk about some of the UFO stuff here? Uh, Real quick, let's get down into this. Uh, a lot of UFO sightings there in Alaska. Um, we probably don't hear about them as much down here because, again, Alaska being so remote, we don't hear about it uh, too often. But there is the uh, famous Japanese airline 1628 uh, with Captain Tarachi. Uh, and this is, this is a drawing of what he saw. Now, okay, this is 1986. Uh, Kenju Tarachi, he was an ex-fighter pilot, had more than 10,000 hours of flight time over 29 years as a senior airline pilot. He never talked about this sort of thing before. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, this incident happens where he's, he's flying uh, through Alaska, about 104 miles northeast of Fort Yukon. And he starts seeing these lights. He at first thinks maybe some sort of military aircraft or whatever. But after a few months, after a few minutes, he realizes that the lights are actually pacing his aircraft, Flight 1628. Uh, Tarachi radioed the Anchorage Air Route Traffic Control Center, asked about other possible aircraft that may have been in the area. The Anchorage Control Center reported there was no military aircraft in the vicinity and ground radar only showed flight 1628 in that area. Then the lights that Tarachi witnessed began moving erratically. He attempted some evasive maneuvers to try to shake off the craft, including flying in circles and changing altitude. But all through it, the UFO continued to shadow 1628. Anchorage offered to scramble a military jet, Tarachi declined because he didn't want to, uh, he feared a military confrontation, didn't want to endanger the lives of his crew. A few minutes later, a United Airlines uh, jet flew into the same airspace and was requested by air traffic control to get a visual on the situation. But then the UFO seemed to disappear, never to be seen again. So 
This thing followed Flight 1628 for about 400 miles. The FAA, uh, Federal Aviation Administration, was called into this. Chief John Callahan of the Accidents and Investigations Branch uh, started this investigation. He was going through all of this audio footage that he had. There's also the CIA and the Reagan administrative team got involved. And from what he was able to piece together from the uh, from the audio between Captain Trachi, the FAA, and the military was watching this thing too, which even though Trachi was saying, no, you don't have to scramble any jets or anything, the, the military was, was watching it as well. This is what Callahan said. Um, Callahan said, when they asked me what I thought, I told them it looked like we had a UFO up there. As far as I was concerned, Reagan science teams were the ones that verified my own thoughts about it. They were very, very excited about the data. They had said at the time that this was the only time they used the words UFO was ever recorded on radar for any length of time. However, the CIA put the kibosh on it. They said, no, we're not, we're not dealing with this. So here's a more detailed, um, illustration by Tarachi, and you have some uh, translations here of some of the different uh, features, pale white light on either side, uh, same size. He said it was the same size as an aircraft carrier, and uh, he saw it as a silhouette because there was a point in time they were around Fairbanks. So, um, yeah, very, very interesting indeed. Another interesting location up in Alaska regarding UFOs and just um, throughout there, because some people believe that the Douglas Skymaster that we mentioned earlier may have been a victim of UFO activity. In Kodiak, a couple days before the Douglas Skymaster went missing, there was a pretty significant uh, experience there where the Navy had seen... Uh, quite a bit going on. It was uh, 2.40 a.m., and there were strange radar readings that were taken by a Navy patrol pilot and then quickly vanished. Inquired if there were any other aircraft in the area. They responded, uh, the Kodiak station responded that there were not. But 20 minutes later, just south of Kodiak, aboard the USS Tillamook, there was an officer on deck that reported seeing a very fast-moving red glow light, which appeared to be exhaust in nature. Then, in a clockwise fashion, the strange light circled the Kodiak area, originating from the southeast and returning from whence it came after it circled. There was another officer that came out on deck during this time and also witnessed the phenomenon, describing it as a large uh, ball of orange fire. This sort of thing went on for a couple of hours, where you had all these different witnesses seem to be circling the area. Um, you know, and so... You know, people on the ground were seeing it. People on the ship were seeing it. It's pretty significant. And this was just a couple of days before that Douglas Skymaster went missing. A couple of days after that Skymaster went missing, again, this is 1950, there was another UFO, a little bit lesser, uh, less drama, was less dramatic than this other one, um, in and around the Elmendorf Air Force Base area. So we seem to have some of this too when these disappearances happen that there seems to be some UFO activity as well.
Then there's Mount Hayes. Uh, it's believed that there is an extraterrestrial base there at Mount Hayes. It's a very remote area. Um, you can only fly into it. There's no road that goes up there. Uh, and you kind of see in front of it uh, one of the glaciers. It's basically surrounded by by glaciers. Um, you have uh, some other locations around there. Um, what is it? Greeley Air Force Base, which is not, I mean, it's a good, what, almost 100 miles away that uh, has seen some UFO activity around that area before. But here specifically, uh, where we get the stories is by uh, Pat Price, who was a rather significant remote viewer during the Project Stargate days uh, of, the, uh, of the military. So I say military, but it started with Stanford Research Institute. Uh, but basically, Pat Price, he was a uh, he was a remote viewer, once served as local councilman for Burbank, California, also spent some time as police commissioner, where he actually said he put his psychic and remote viewing abilities to work. So he got involved with Hal Putoff Stanford Research Institute uh, during his stint on the program. And I'm not going to go into all the different things that actually qualify Pat Price as a very, very good remote viewer, but he was. So we're kind of running out of time here. Um, he, he dropped a folder on Putoff's desk one day and says, you might be interested in these. Basically, it was, a, it was a list of locations in which Price had reviewed on his own, or reviewed on his own, and they were, uh, they were UFO bases. One of those was Mount Hayes. Uh, regarding Mount Hayes, uh, Price's report described the site as a type of weather and geological center. His viewing session revealed computer equipment, oscilloscopes, and a small box-like component with a rotational antenna mounted on top of the mountain peak. It appeared to be part of some sort of detection system for atmospheric monitoring. The baseboard deep underground and contained super advanced humanoids. Yes, I'm reading from Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, my book. <laughs> uh, and contained super advanced humanoids differing in heart, lungs, blood, and eyes working side by side with humans, likely military personnel. Price's report also stated this site has also been responsible for strange activity and malfunction of U.S. and Soviet space projects. Price did die under mysterious circumstances. Um, he was being uh, he was being courted by different organizations. Uh, the CIA moved Price to their own facilities in Washington D.C. He met with the Office of Naval Intelligence and the NSA. And shortly thereafter, Price died in bizarre fashion in a Las Vegas hotel room. So some say the death was natural. Others say that the KGB killed him. And others say the CIA was involved. Uh, whichever the case, Price began convulsing in bed. And at one point, he convulsed so severely that his body arced to the point that only his head and feet were touching the bed. Basically like something out of a demon possession movie. His breathing was described as sounding like a death rattle and then suddenly stopped entirely. Paramedics were too late to the scene to help. While his body was rushed to the hospital, there was no autopsy performed, and his body was cremated before his wife was even called about the matter. So pretty mysterious indeed that he just suddenly died, no autopsy, cremated before his wife could even get there. Bizarre stuff. So Price was definitely onto something. Now, when it comes to Mount Hayes, over the years, um the coordinates for that location have been given to other remote viewers just the coordinates tell me what you can what you can about this area uh 
in all of their viewings of Mount Hayes are very, very consistent with each other. So it's one of the things that gives credence uh, to all of this. So with just a few minutes left here, what do I want to talk about? Um, so we don't really have time to really get into, because we have the, the Antarctica connections, Atlantis connections, ancient civilizations, giants. Um, and what I really find interesting about the, the giant tales of Alaska uh, is one in particular. Now, I could, uh, we've done part of a show on this before, talking about, um, you know, the larger possibly Denisovans, coming over from Siberia into Alaska. And we know people, you know, regular humans, you know, cross that Bering Land Bridge, uh, you know, what, 15,000 years ago, something like that. Where we get the idea of um, the giants is from, uh, the writer was, was Michael Kazing, that's kind of his English name, but he was a uh, native Inuit. And he handwrote 500 pages of all kinds of Inuit stories, lore, things like that. Very broken English. But he had all of these different giant stories in the area, including ones that came from Siberia. And also, and I'm going to read this bit from his work. He says, And there were giants born by human being, as well as those giants raise no children, because they have no female of their own. Thus, we see interbreeding between a giant race of people and humans. Or actually, that's my comment there at the end. Again, I'm reading from Alaska's Mysterious Triangle. Um, but basically, we see interbreeding between a giant race of people and humans, much like we see in the Bible's book of Genesis and the book of Enoch, uh, where, I mean, basically, it's like a Nephilim-type story, right? Where you had, um, you know, the the angelic beings, the the um, you know, the watches, these type of peoples interbreeding with um, human women, creating the giants. This is the type of story that you're getting there in Alaska. And we never really connect those together. You know, Bible stories, Book of Enoch, that sort of thing with, with Alaska. But considering they had people come from that region of the world, there are connections between Siberia and, and the Middle East. Uh, when, we, when we look at those ancient connections, that does exist. So keep drawing the line further. Okay, you've got Middle East to Siberia. Keep going. Siberia to Alaska, which we knew uh, peoples migrated in, according to the Inuit legends, the giants as well. So when it comes to the Antarctica connections, uh, we could get into the Black Pyramid a little bit. We don't have time for it, but you do see these. This is actually um, pyramidal structures here in Antarctica. Um, we're told that they are just mountains, but I mean, that looks like... And you look at that one inset there, and it looks like an aerial view of the Great Pyramid of Giza, but with snow on it. But we're being told it's just a mountain. We don't know for sure. It's a very, very remote area. Um, nobody's gone there. These are just satellite images. So we would have to go there, of course, and explore and take a look. But you have the stories of the Black Pyramid in Alaska, which are 
yes, they're just anecdotal in nature because the pyramid is supposed to be uh, buried under the mountains around Mount Denali. You know, I've had people remote view into there. Um, you've had the, you know, geological survey that was done when uh, some seismic waves hit the area back in 1992. Again, it's an anecdotal story. We don't have something we can point at and say, there it is. But we do have these different pyramidal structures around the world. And we do know that the world was much closer together than it was. Antarctica, we know, was certainly in a different location. They've drilled down into the ice. They've come up with jungle. There's a jungle under there. Uh, you also look at old historic maps, like the Piri Reese map and some of these others, where they show Antarctica. These are hundreds of years old, based off of maps that are thousands of years old. Not only do they show Antarctica, which wasn't kind of, quote-unquote, discovered until 1820. It was a rediscovery of it. But they also show life on it. So it was in a different area of the world. So how connected were these different lands to each other? Alaska and Antarctica are certainly connected because at different times, the poles shift and one becomes this North Pole and the other becomes the South Pole. And they flip-flop on this. But if a culture like, we'll say the ancient Atlanteans, maybe they're the ones that built some of these original, original pyramidal structures, knew of a place like Antarctica, then that may give credence to Alaska as when they built pyramids down there. They may give credence to something like a black pyramid being up there in Alaska because it seems more and more like they were a worldwide culture. And I'm going to end it off on that. There was a lot more I could have covered here, um, but we only have so much time. So that is going to do it for this evening. I do appreciate all the uh, questions and comments throughout we're going to keep doing some uh, research here on this Mars photograph. Um, that is just, I'm going to throw it up here one more time. That thing is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, again, we will not have a class next week because of all my traveling here. I mean, I'm, I'm headed out on a plane tomorrow morning. Then I come back and then I'm on the road to, to Buffalo for another interview, come back, and then uh, I'm down in Mansfield for uh, Paris Icon. So, there's just no time to actually hold a class next week, but I will get some um, uh, sneak peeks and behind the scenes footage up on the Connected Universe portal for you guys from my travels. So be on the lookout for all of that. All right, everybody, have a great night. Till next time, if time really exists.